0: Hello everyone, James here. Bit of a weird start, but just an announcement before we do begin. Um, As you might know, me and Ryan don't record in person anymore. We both record our audio separately and edit them together. And around 33 minutes into recording this episode, I realised that my recording had stopped. And it wasn't until 10 minutes later that I realised. So halfway through the episode, you might hear Ryan talking to himself without any response. He hasn't lost his mind. He's... (laughs) just talking to a man who wasn't recording his audio. Luckily, it was Ryan doing the episode, so I don't think I chime in with much, but he might ask a question and not get an answer. Hopefully it doesn't affect it that much, and then it does get resolved. Thanks for that. Enjoy the episode. (laughs)
1: and welcome to another episode of That's What People Do. Uh, We are now episode 51, and we are also part three of Winston Churchill, our first three-parter episode on anything. Um, You are joined as ever by me, Ryan McGowan, hosting today's episode, and with me, as always, is James Kay. Hey, James.
0: Good day. How are
1: we? We're good. Are you good?
0: i'm i am very good very good very good poor, good but, i hope yeah. your listeners are good i hope you're all enjoying
1: yourselves if you're going back to work now if that's is a thing a lot of people are if you enjoyed super saturday i hope you stayed safe um if you're not going back to work and you're still at home enjoy it while it lasts because you know once you go back to work everyone says the same thing they're like oh i really wish i was back to work now i'm really bored i'm telling you now about two weeks into going back to work you'll wish you had it all back as it was um anyway we're part 3 of winston churchill it's our first three parter so far we have left churchill we've we've seen churchill's younger years becoming uh you know a young soldier in the british empire wandering around india and south africa and all sorts and then part 2 we saw him during his war years of world war 1 and we left him <clears throat> Just before World War II. So, we have a lot to cover in this episode. I promised myself that this would be the last in our series on Winston Churchill. Not doing no more. So, when we last left Churchill, he was out of politics. Hitler's Nazi Germany had annexed Austria and Czechoslovakia and is now blitzkrieging its way into Poland in September of 1939 alongside Russia. Um, I forgot... When I wrote this, in fact, I only put it there this morning that Russia was still part of the invasion of Poland in 1939. I completely forgot that was a thing.
0: That, wait, what?
1: Yes, all right, evidently someone doesn't know that either. Did you know that um, Russia and Nazi Germany had signed a non aggression pact before the First World War?
0: I, I was unaware.
1: Right, so um, <clears throat> Hitler absolutely. Oh,
0: Go yeah, on, go no, on. no, no. I do know Hitler and Stalin were buds. They were bros, but well, they, then they, they, they were and they weren't. They were on paper.
1: You know how like Hitler was bros with Neville Chamberlain on rice paper, but it meant fuck all. He was the same yeah, with yeah. Russia. It was just rice paper that, if it's from Russia, tasted absolutely fucking awful. Um, that was that was them. He was like, um, "Hey, Russia, we won't invade you if you choose to invade Poland with us in 1939," uh, and like. Um, we can then split the land in half if you want. And then Mr. Stalin was like, Totally, bro, let's do it. And then he went, Right, let's crack on. And then, like, Germany invaded Poland on one side, Russia invaded from the other side. And they were like, they were allies at the beginning. Russia was not an ally of the UK and the like, us lot, it was an ally of Nazi Germany. So, yeah, Russia actually had, um, I'm not sure if you're aware, a mini war with Finland. When? Uh, it was in 1939 slash 40. It lasted a couple of months, but Russia, because Finland was like a relatively new country that broke away from Russia. And Russia at that time was going to be like, well, Soviet Russia, I should say, USSR. It's like, we're going to gain more territory back that we lost. We're And then they invaded Finland. Um, and it literally lasted, I think, for like the winter, like the Finnish war or something like that. And Finland, being like a relatively small and new country, fought back the mighty USSR. Um, it's actually where we get the term Molotov cocktail from. Is from that... You've
0: said this before.
1: Yeah, totally have. What episode was it? For what episode? Oh, so it many. Might, it might have been uh, Vital Piwetsky's episode. It might have been Yeah, then. I assume so. Um, but yeah, that we get Molotov cocktail from that conflict between Finland and Russia. But yeah, so Russia weren't the good guys at the beginning. Although they did become later on, so yeah, that's just some little aside. Russia, alongside Germany, uh, blitzkrieged its way into Poland. Now, because of this, Britain's Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain declared war on Germany on the third of September in nineteen thirty-nine. Um, now, Chamberlain gets called this, like sort of weak Prime Minister. He's like, "Oh, he's a weak man," blah blah blah. But could you imagine yourself being the leader of a nation and having to declare war on another one? Because imagine that's fucking
0: hard Uh, I suppose it depends who you are isn't it like for us nice folk it would be quite tough but I imagine for others it would be fairly straightforward yeah I mean you. Uh, I mean
1: maybe I don't know now warfare is definitely a different beast but warfare back then you knew that like thousands of people could potentially be getting killed you know by declaring war on someone
0: yeah, I mean, it's happening, like, I don't want to say it's a declaration of war, but have you seen what's going on with uh, England and China lately? Yes. Where we're, like, taking in uh, the or offered citizenship to 3 million Hong Kongers, and yeah. the uh, Chinese ambassador in London has just said, we want to be your friend, but if you want to treat us like an enemy, you're going to have to deal with the consequences. Yeah. Like, what, that is such, that's a threat. Totally is a that's, threat. Surely that's a threat of war. Totally is a threat.
1: Um, I think what i'm not sure about that this right this is not a current affairs episode <laughs> um, i'm not so i don't know how far that will go i just think it will be sanctions that people don't like and it'll be a lot of fucking mudslinging and shit and all that sort of stuff and that will be it I, I, i'll be very very surprised if it went to any sort of like conflict um because then china knows that it has to deal with america and then from america they have to know if they deal with russia and it would it would be a full-on world war again
0: but at the yeah, same it would be fun but then but then we live in post-Brexit Britain and we <coughs> wanted to strike up trade deals with China. This is true.
1: This is true. It, uh, like,
0: that's fucked, isn't it? Yeah,
1: post-Brexit relies on China and America. Um, but at the same time China leave Hong Kong alone please like just let them crack on. Maybe it's our fault. Yeah. It's totally our fault because of empire we allowed them to think that they had some sort of independence being alone at the island um you could be independent you could do what you like. Uh, not realising that we were only renting it for a time from China. And then China walked back in and went, oh yeah, you remember you are part of us. And they went, ah, shit. So it's our fault. It's our fault. We totally should have done more to look after this Hong Kong. It's always our fault. It is always our fault. Um, but yeah, so declaring war must be a fucking hard thing. Uh, and you'd be surprised how much influence British Empire still has on the world today. You'll still see, You'll see like we mentioned last, last week's episode, you still see the scars... In today's modern world, so um, firstly, I want to remind everyone. uh, Sorry to all you listeners as well. My voice seems to be going at the moment, so if I if I am coughing or like you know trying to clear my throat, I do apologise. I know it doesn't sound brilliant, but it's going to happen. Otherwise, I will sound like I'm 14 again, which you might like more. I'm not sure. So um, I would like to remind everyone that uh, this is not a military history podcast. So, I won't be going into too much detail regarding troop movements, battles and the like, you know. So, if I mention anything, it will be for contextual purposes only. So, I don't want to hear, oh, Ryan, you didn't mention this or you didn't mention that. If it's not relevant to Churchill, I won't have. And we don't have all the time in the world, so I can't go over everything even then, alright? Just point that out. So, War was declared, and Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain needs someone who is experienced with warfare and, more importantly, making tough decisions. Enter now 65 years old Winston Churchill as the newly appointed First Lord of the Admiralty, which, as you will remember, is the same position he held during the First World War. Mm. And that went swimmingly, didn't it? Remember the Dardanelles?
0: Yeah. And so,
1: the phony war begins. Do you know anything about the phony war? Please elaborate. Okay, so this is a period of about eight months at the beginning of the war. It's so-called because the general public in the UK didn't really think there was much happening at the time. So, war had been declared on September the 3rd. um, And for the general public of the UK, nothing happened. There was no bombings. Um, there was an estimated a million dead expected, uh, by government at the time. They expected a full-on destruction of London with a million dead with three million casualties. This was at the start. Bomb shelters were erected. Um, gas masks were all issued to everyone. Uh, children were evacuated from the cities into the countryside and then nothing happened for like eight months. Nothing. So this whole country is poised for defence and, uh, being attacked and nothing happened so generally uh, the public went well, it's a bit phony in it they used to call it, it was a bit of a phony war and then you'd get the odd veteran that would come back who's like maybe fought in norway who would go there is a war going on you know um mm. so yeah it's not completely accurate of course uh, you had the british expeditionary force they were the initial guys who went off to france they went to northern france to sit there because obviously France and Britain had declared war on Germany, and then they sat in northern France and basically had a holiday. They didn't really do too much, but that's not to say there was nothing happening, because there was a lot happening during the war at that time. It just wasn't happening in mainland Britain and mainland Europe at that time. So it turns out... The British began to attempt a blockade of Germany and starve the country of its resources. They tried to do this during the First World War. It worked relatively okay, and that seemed to be the tactic. Just blockade them, starve them out. They can't really do much. But German U-boats, which they're they're submarines, which is what they're kind of famous for, they were so Mm -hmm. deadly that they had problems from the start. And then the Battle of the Atlantic would begin and lasted throughout the entire war. It's, it's a it's very much unheard of uh, theatre of warfare, the Battle of the Atlantic. It, uh, obviously, um, there was trade going between the Americas and mainland Europe, and what Germany wanted to do was control that. And by doing so, you would sink all the ships and stop all the resources coming to mainland Europe, which was helping them fight the war. That battle literally lasted for the entire war and is not spoken about enough and should be. So um, it also turns out that to fight a war, you need a shitload of resources and one of those, among many, is iron ore and two nations that produced a shitload of it is Norway and Sweden. Now, Britain and France, they know this, and they were planning some sort of landing to the Scandinavian country of Norway. Have you played Battlefield Five at all? Oh,
0: Battlefield Five. Yeah, it's their World War II no, version. I'd... Uh... I played the World War One version.
1: Good game, uh, but no, Battlefield Five is their World War Two version, and they actually have a campaign section in I think it's Nor Norvik, which is Norway, um, and there's this whole like, if, if you've played it, listeners, it's the Heavy Water mission is what they're sort of referring to, um, but not the Heavy Water bit. I'm not sure how much history there is in that. It's more for iron ore, and they'd go through Norway to Sweden to get shitloads of it. So Germany knows about France's and Britain's plan to invade land on Norway and Scandinavian countries and sort of hold those, use the iron ore for their own war uh, benefits. So, So really scared of that happening, they preemptively invaded Denmark and then Norway in April of 1940. So fighting between the Allies and the Germans broke out but led to an allied evacuation of the region, leaving Germany to hold on to Norway and Sweden until the end of the war, stripping the countries of their natural resources. So Britain's failure here would lead to some really, really tough discussions between the Conservative government and the Labour opposition. So a vote of no confidence was called out to the Conservative government, but they narrowly survived. Now, Chamberlain, having not much support, called for a national government to be formed, but Labour would not serve under Chamberlain. So, in May of 1940, he resigned and Winston Churchill was made, 2 peace signs up, please, Prime Minister of Great Britain. It's also important to note he is also an unelected Prime Minister, Mm. which people seem to forget. Uh, Now, finally, Churchill's in the hotspot. He's the man in charge the big dog. You know, as he would put it, he, quotes, felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. So like I said, I'm not going to go over every battle and stuff about the war. Instead, I'll be going over some important parts that involve Churchill himself, such as, number one, Dunkirk. Now, Germany swept through Europe like coronavirus at a newly opened bar in Soho. France... <laughs> Too soon? <laughs> uh, France's... <maybe. laughs> yeah. uh, France's famous Maginot line, which was an impenetrable border fortress designed to protect France from any future invasions from Germany. This was, I'm not even shitting you, uh, a fortress, like an actual wall of just fucking big guns on the border of yeah. France and Germany, stretching from Switzerland to about the Ardennes Forest, which is off like Luxembourg, Belgium, right? And it was just facing... Yeah, I'm, sure, I'm sure this has come up in another episode as oh, well. Oh, more than likely. More back. than likely. Um, they, they sort of created it after the First World War. Uh, and that was...
0: Yeah, just to stop them doing that. That's again. exactly
1: that. And in fact, it was so good at stopping a German invasion coming through Germany to France directly, it decided it would go
0: around it. <laughs> and it went through that's that's such a massive flaw isn't it when you don't make a wall that like finishes somewhere Right,
1: I thought the same thing so actually it decided it was going to go around it went through Luxembourg Belgium and then the Ardennes Forest Um, I found this hilarious obviously it is quite funny that they went oh that wall's so good I'm going to go around it But there, there is yeah, and more to it. then the French it.
0: just realise, oh shit, no, they're now behind. No, them. it's really easy
1: to do that. And I did exactly the same thing. It turns out what happened is France and Belgium had some sort of political agreement that what they would do is they'd build the Maginot Line up to a certain point. And then if ever anything happened, Belgium would allow France to use its territory to form the rest of the line uh, out of um, infantrymen. And that's how they would finish off the line, using Belgium and French soldiers and whatnot that's how they would finish the line and there's like a a really important river in Belgium that is actually quite a good uh, defensive um, point and that's where France would Belgium would let France basically come in and set up there and that would complete the Maginot line but then France and Belgium had a bit of a falling out and then Belgium decided no in fact I'm going to stay neutral forever I'm never really going to get involved in a war again and I don't really want to side with you anymore so they pulled out, and then France went. Oh fuck! Our whole plan revolves around Belgium letting us get in. Um, so yeah. what happened was when 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 Germany decided to go through neutral Belgium again and Luxembourg, uh, France couldn't get in there quick enough, and that's how it, that's basically how they got in. So yeah, it's because Belgium pulled out <clears throat> of a very very right, bloody Belgium. Yeah, yeah, it's basically Belgium. Sorry, Belgium, it's your own fault. You got invaded. It's definitely not, but it's funny. <clears throat> yeah uh also yeah really important to notice um there's the Ardenne forest, which is like luxembourg Belgium border in France heavily packed forest France was like um Germany's never gonna get through here because we remember the first world war, and they yeah all right they had tanks, but as we remember from the first world war, tanks were clumsy as fuck, and then uh yeah that was yeah shit. Winston churchill was like. Yeah, no, tanks ain't like that no more. Tanks are actually quite good. I would recommend you defend the Ardennes Forest because they could definitely get through there. And France went nah, so Germany went through the Ardennes Forest with their new tanks, and France was like, "What?"
0: Philip France really didn't help himself. Yeah, yeah,
1: there does seem to be a lot of um, still back in, like, stuck in some old ways and not progressing enough, so that Mm. they fuck themselves over. Yeah. So. The German invasion, using its Blitzkrieg tactic, which if you don't know means lightning war, which is an excellent word, overwhelmed the Allied forces through France, pushing them towards the English Channel and with nowhere to run, trapped in the coastal city of Dunkirk. Ideas of peace talks with Germany via Italy were being thrown around the war rooms, but Churchill was having none of it. He claimed that the concessions the Germans would give would be less favourable than if they'd fought and won. That's genuinely a thing. The British War Cabinet was considering at that point peace talks with Germany.
0: Imagine if they, they were pushing him hard for they it. They were.
1: They were. Could you imagine yeah, if that I think happened Church, then?
0: I think Churchill and a couple of others. Churchill and a couple of others were the only ones saying, "Oh That's no, right, yeah." I think if Chamberlain was still in charge, 100% we would have signed a peace treaty with Germany. Yeah, and can you imagine how that happened? Like, we would have been allied with Germany for a while. Yeah, that would be mental, and in doing so, it'd be completely complicit with the Holocaust. And yeah, like exactly. That. I mean, yeah,
1: we, we can get into the hypotheticals later, but um, just on a little aside, this is just personally, right? Personally, I think this was all several factors, right? going on as to why Churchill was like adamant to not have peace talks with Germany so yes he believed that being in a position of weakness meant that your bargaining powers are gone which is exactly where they were they, they were literally on the on the on the verge of losing the war so you, you, you've got no bargaining power at that point you can't make demands when you're losing but I genuinely believe, and this is just personal, I genuinely believe that he wanted to try and bring back this superpower that was the British Empire. For years, the empire was losing influence, power and land with calls for independence echoing around. Now, to demonstrate that, to demonstrate that Britain was still a world superpower able to take on such a threat would put everyone else back in line. And I think that's where his head was at. So, after all, he says in a speech to the Commons in May of 1940, Quotes You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. Let that be realised. No survival for the British Empire no survival for all that the british empire has stood for no survival that's a genuine quote from winston churchill talking about what his sort of his 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 aim for the war is that and i believe that he totally had a hard-on for this and he wanted it there would be no peace talks because he wanted to have a fight that's my opinion though you guys might think differently but i genuinely think he was he thought if he can sort of show the world that the empire is still strong, everyone else would fall back in line and it would just go back to how it used to be. I genuinely think that.
0: I mean, you you can see it through his entire life and everything he's been through. It's like To give him credit, he's a very resilient chap. Yeah. He doesn't throw in the towel. No, he doesn't.
1: like As I say, we've done this now. This is, th- this is part three. Um, well, if, if we've learned anything in parts one and two is that Churchill yearns for this empire of old that he grew up in. He, he, he cannot... He cannot see the world for what it is now. And that is different. It's, it's it's changing. And he doesn't want to see it. He cannot see it.
0: He would cry if he came into mo- today's modern world. Oh, 100%. I think he'd, his head would explode. Totally. He,
1: he, yeah, maybe. Now, Operation Dynamo, or the Miracle of Dunkirk as we know it, would be put into effect. A military evacuation disguised as a victory. Churchill does mention this, saying, quotes... We must be very careful not to assign to this deliverance the attributes of a victory. Wars are not won by evacuations. So 338,226 military personnel were evacuated from mainland Europe back to Britain. Uh, Among the military vessels, 850 private vessels commandeered by the Navy. Have you seen the film Dunkirk? Yep. Um... Are you inspired by the story of civilians getting in their little boats and sailing across the channel and picking up soldiers? I
0: thought it's it was very, very, very nice. nice. Yep.
1: Did you know that that was not necessarily true?
0: What, the vessels just got Yeah, pretty much that's
1: what happened. The vessels were commandeered by the Navy. There was not that many civilians who just got in their boats and sailed across the channel. That was not allowed. You couldn't do that. Um your, your vessels were commandeered by the Navy, not by civilians. There were a couple of instances, but the most part, they were just fishermen who were already kind of out, and they just joined them. Um, but it, it's a nice right, story, I and I think that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to raise the spirits of a nation to say, look, even our civilians, in times of desperate need, took up the call and did what they had to do. I think that's what it is. But yeah, it's not necessarily true. Like in the movie, yeah, it shows yeah. that that was like a thing that happened. It's, it's not, it's not. But, but people's right, okay. ships and boats were commandeered by the Navy. So
0: this obviously... And still a glaring success. Oh yeah, te-
1: in, a technically a brilliant success. Uh, but as Churchill said, you don't win wars with evacuations. Although he did, so it does. Mm. Now this led to one of Churchill's most famous wartime speeches. Uh, we'll go on to read a vast majority of it. So bear with me. Quotes. And I'll try to do my best Churchill impression. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France, we shall fight on the seas and oceans, we shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender, and even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas armed and guarded by the british fleet would carry on the struggle until in god's good time the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and liberation of the old again no loads of fucking dropping hints of the empire reminding everyone he, he loves yeah. The he's empire. desperately trying to remind everyone: we are a fucking empire, and we've got a shitload to give. We've got all this land. We are powerful. We are brilliant. We are. Do you know what I mean? Like he's really trying to hammer home, trying to flog a dead horse, basically. You know. Also, you spot yeah. the little hint there to America, um, until. Until the in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to rescue and the, and and the liberation of the old. That's definitely a little hint to America. Please help us out.
0: Yeah, like fucking get off your ass, do some it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and he does. He he pretty much does beg America to sort of join the war. He knows that without them, that we can't win. So yeah. around around this time, Churchill had sent British, Indian, and other Commonwealth forces to Africa as an immediate response to Italy's joining the war. That theatre of war and Italy was referred to as Europe's soft underbelly. Um, He saw mainland Europe as a crocodile. Northern Europe, France, Germany, Netherlands, all that sort of place, that was the crocodile's tough, hardened back, which you can't penetrate. But Italy was on the south of Europe, and northern Africa was the soft underbelly, which we could pierce. You genuinely saw Italy as not really much of a threat. Italy yeah. during like World War Two, if I could maybe like try and to analogize it in any way, shape or form, it's like you know when you were like ten or twelve and you played football and uh, that there was a football game going on and you went, can I join in? And someone went, oh, it's not my ball, it's his. Yeah. You went over to that kid and you went, oh, do you mind if I join in? And he just looked at you and without even saying a word, just went, Um, yeah, sure, if you want. That's what Nazi yeah. Germany did with Italy. Italy went, can we <laughs> join? And it went, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> go on then. Yeah, go on then. So yeah, that, like you might I don't know. I d I don't know actually. You cannot be offended by me saying that if you are Italian, right? Go, no, we were more than that to the Germans. You don't want to be more than that to the Germans. More so Hitler didn't like the Italians. He looked at in terms of like the hierarchy of race, Italians were lower than the British. So, you know, if he would if he, he had if he had a choice he'd have picked us Brits <laughs> I don't like that yeah That's a and thing.
0: he would have walked th- if he did win the war and win the rest of Europe he would have taken Italy as well at the end
1: uh, he totally hated like southern Europe he didn't like like the Spanish or the Italians he thought them as lesser Europeans than the Aryans so he totally would have walked all over you afterwards anyway he did it to Russia and that was mid-war so <laughs> and Russia's fucking huge man he took it on he was like yeah. he was like I don't know a wee terrier trying to hump a lion he was like oh fuck it I'll have a go <laughs>
0: That was his
1: big mistake. Um, yeah, it totally was. Now let's talk about the Battle of Britain. It's nineteen forty. The German Luftwaffe was fighting the British RAF for supremacy of the air over Britain. With victory here, the Germans would be able to launch an invasion of Britain. Also nicknamed, I think, Operation Sea lion I believe. Um possibly ending the war for us and ending the world's longest game of I'm the King of the Castle, as Britain hasn't been invaded since ten sixty six. Now, the RAF, due to a combination of factors like, you know, radar, British ace pilots and foreign fighters like the Polish and the British Commonwealth, was able to hold back and defeat the Luftwaffe in the air, putting a halt to any future invasion of Britain. Can I just point out as well, um, if you could, please, I'd like you to do this right now. I don't care if you're embarrassed by it. Could you please do me your best impression of what a British RAF ace pilot sounds like?
0: Hello, how are you?
1: Yes. It's not a good show. Yes, it's exactly what most people would do. Did you know that's not true? If anything, they probably sounded like you and me.
0: Yeah, the, the, I remember reading stories about how they'd have like a week or two of training. they were like, here you go, here's your plane, have, a, have fun. Exactly that. So for the most part... Mental. For the most part,
1: British RAF at that time, and the, the, the few as they are then nicknamed later on, those that fought in the Battle of Britain, those ace pilots were just, for the most part, just common fucktards like you and me. Just like yeah, fuck it, let's do it. And they signed up, had a couple of weeks training and then they just went for it. Not a lot of them were this like, you know, eaten toff, you know, hello, all this sort of thing that we perceive them to be now and mythologised to be. A lot of that, I think, comes from old war movies because that's just how they spoke back then. Yeah. So yeah, that's a little myth. Uh, so the, the RAF, as I say, was predominantly fought by like, you know, um, you know us plucky Brits. Um, and for the most part, you know, foreigners foreigners um bloody hell (laughs) yeah i'm gonna get onto that in a minute um fact, no i will i just want to point out here right And again this is just a little personal section but if you don't like my personal drives, you know come back to us in about a minute um british people you know the type i'm referring to when i say this the kind that really love bringing up that we won the war you know the kind that sing Two World Wars and one World Cup, that Those kind of people, you know, the ones who maybe have yeah. the odd occasional racist tendency. They seem mm-hmm. to forget that without the Commonwealth and foreign soldiers, we really wouldn't have stood a chance in either the First or the Second World War. And in particular, the Battle of
0: Britain so i saw a picture i think yesterday in fact it was like a, a Sikh unit of the um bat- yeah, like the rf they yeah. in the battle of britain
1: yep, yep 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 there's a lot of that um so here's just like a little list of some of the nations that helped us fight during the battle of britain alone so polish fighters about 140 of them New Zealanders, uh, between one hundred and thirty Canadians, Czechoslovakians, Belgians, Australians, South Africans, free French, uh, the United States, but uh, Barbados. We had one Bayesian fighter pilot. We had one Jamaican. These people come from all over the world to help us fight during the Battle of Britain. So when we hear like all this like plucky Brits and oh, hello, like we're off, off we go fighting the Luftwaffe and all this sort of stuff, they, these guys are from all over the world helping us out. So, you know, that's kind of a part of this podcast episode about Churchill, you know, dispelling myths and making us realise that, you know, we are a world and we all should work together. Anyway. Yeah. Back to it. The Battle of Britain allowed for another famous speech by Churchill, helped to maintain the spirits of a nation by saying, quotes, the gratitude of every home in our island, in our empire, ding, 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 stop mentioning the empire, and Indeed, throughout the world, except in the abodes of the guilty, goes out to the British airmen who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge and mortal danger, are turning the tide of the world war by their prowess and by their devotion. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. If anything, Churchill, in his wartime years, is just a PR master, bloody good at speeches. Bloody good at speeches. They they do say he's like thought of as like one of the best orators in Britain in the like, in British history. I I completely agree with you. I think a lot of like again we've seen a lot of comments on our social media about Churchill this week. A lot of it's like you cannot say a bad word about him, and I think what it is is the whole reason why we're doing this podcast. People seem to think that Churchill only exists between 1940 and 1945. Um, I do mention it later on, but he is the master of PR. Like He has the right photo opportunity at the right time, and he says the right thing at the right moment. And that is what made him like relevant and famous and kept him popular. Uh, but yeah, so anyway, the Luftwaffe, having lost the Battle of Britain, changed its tactic and began a bombing campaign of British cities known as the Blitz. Now, Churchill was based in London with the government and his war council. They wanted to uh, relocate the government and parliament and all that to Worcestershire, um, believing that to be a safer location. But Churchill was absolutely having none of it. He was like, I'm not having government be moved to Worcestershire, claiming that it would be bad for the morale of the people to see that their leaders uh, were fleeing, basically, leaving them to it instead he stayed in London he actually on some occasions would stand outside and watch the raids happening as they happened and uh, apparently he had very high spirits throughout majority of the blitz and you know kept the nation going as well Uh, this is where we had the keep calm carry on poster come around that's so famous now so the blitz in all lasted eight months it destroyed across the UK two million homes and it killed around 43,000 civilians so, yeah, man, it's kind of a big deal for us civilians back home. <clears throat> so, let's talk about the Atlantic Charter, shall we? In 1941, Churchill crossed the dangerous Atlantic Ocean to meet the President of America, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who is a distant cousin of Theodore Roosevelt, a previous president. Now, he wanted to butter up the American president and bring them into the war. Now, technically, although roosevelt was anti-committing to the war they were already sending supplies and resources to britain so you could argue they were already in the war just not fighting it per se or sending men to die in it now they discussed the atlantic charter which is um sort of basically their vision of the world after the war and what it would look like um what exactly are they fighting for that that those sort of topics and conversations were being had um so fdr wanted it to be um fought over self-determination for all nations uh which obviously is not going to be very good for the british empire uh because he's like you know you know people from wherever they are should be able to choose how they're governed and and be able to govern themselves and churchill was just like yeah yeah, yeah. can you help us fight this war please to stop talking about that <laughs> um because obviously there's still quite a lot of going on in, a, in india india is still even then like calling for independence and fdr is basically supporting that he's like yeah totally you should be allowed to choose who governs you you should be able to govern yourself and Churchill's was like shut the fuck up please so yeah sure there's you know independence course from all over the empire reverberating in the halls of government but churchill's so desperate to you know keep his empire um but in reality his desperate need to get America into the war to help him fight it is really what sped up the breakup of the empire. Which is ironic, isn't it? So, his desperate attempt to keep it almost stopped it and helped dismantle it. So, after the attack of Pearl Harbor, Churchill addressed the US Congress and addressed uh, and actually pressed uh, FDR to focus on the war in Europe with Hitler instead of japan because obviously they were really pissed about pearl harbor so let's say naturally this would be really hard for the americans but they did go with churchill on this and they entered the african theater of war from 1942 we all joke that the americans came in at the last hurdle again like they did in 1917 with world war one um, but they didn't actually they'd been in the war for quite a few years by that point they'd just been fighting in africa and we didn't really see them at all but it was only in 1944 did we see them in europe proper So, Churchill also had his first heart attack after speaking to US Congress and he was advised bed rest. But within two days, he was like, Now fuck that, I want to go back. And he was on a flight back to the UK to keep calm and carry on. So, let's talk about the one thing that gets brought up all the fucking time now at the moment the Bengal famine of 1943. So, in 1942, Japan was island hopping around Pacific and Asia and it also invaded Burma which at the time was held by the British Empire. Now overall I think it's fair to say that Britain's focus was more on the European theatre of war and its role in Asia and the Pacific was not exactly stellar. I would also like to try and not defend it but understand it by saying this. If you are playing chess and you have Several pawns at the end of your chessboard, but you've got a queen from the opposite player staring right at your king. Who do you move first? All right, fair enough. All right, sorry, I've been playing this as a kid. Right in chess, you cannot leave your, your king. Generally, can't be taken, but you cannot leave your king in a position to be taken. Right, you have to continually protect and move the king. Now, the king in this situation is not only our king but the british empire and england itself the pawns which are at the opposite end of the table which are in danger as well are british colonies and overseas territories churchill if he was playing chess has to move his king first and that's how he saw the war europe britain and the king was in terms of chess the piece on the board that was in danger more immediately and so he was not as bothered by the pawns being taken as he was with protecting his own king if that makes sense at all in terms of chess if you if, if, if you guys listening are into chess you, you'll completely understand what i'm getting at. um so yeah because of this the british ordered a retreat of burma to india via bengal which was on the border i.e now the front line bengal was an impoverished region already you know empire and all that and it was a predominantly agrarian region which is all like land-based growing stuff But during 1942, it had suffered a poor harvest, meaning there wasn't much to go around. Now, in terms of eating, you'll be interested to know, the Americans were the best-fed soldiers during World War II. Then it was the British, uh, and then it was the Russians, I believe. Uh, But of the worst, I believe, it was the Japanese. The Japanese were told, basically, to live off the land, eat what you can find, basically, so when you retreat you don't want to leave anything for them so a scorched earth policy came into effect and when britain retreated it pretty much decimated the land so that the japanese forces couldn't live off of it that make sense the only problem is obviously there's been a bad harvest anyway um and what is left we've burnt the fuck out of it I'd also like to mention that there were bombings of merchant ships by the Japanese in the Bay of Bengal, which meant that resources couldn't get to the mainland and even railways were being targeted, adding to further reductions in resources getting to the region itself. So food prices went up due to the scarcity. Indian companies were forced to sell to the military at a reduced rate, but they were free to sell... um, they were free to make up their, basically, prices uh, for domestic sales. And they did. They just fucking They were like, nah, we'll make up the run prices. With scarcity, price goes up. Um, the priority seems to be uh, that not the people living on the region, but the war effort itself and the soldiers that were fighting it. Now, there's a thing people like to say that Churchill orchestrated the famine in Bengal like he planned it all out. Now... He does seem to deny the help of Canadian ships sailing to the region. Uh, the Prime Minister of Cana- uh, C- Canada, the pre- the pre- yeah, the Prime Minister of Canada at the time does say to Churchill, "I can send you a boatload of wheat to the region if you want." And Churchill denies that, saying that one, it would take too long because it would take about two months, and then not only that. With merchant ships being bombed and sunk in the Bay of Bengal, he was like, "It's too much of a risk. You'll take all that time, and get all that way, and you'll still not make it. You might not make it. It's not worth it." So he said no to that. Instead, he what he wanted to do was find a quicker alternative, which he saw as Australia. It would only take a couple of weeks for resources to get from Australia to Bengal. But even then, he denied that, saying that it was just too risky. And he didn't want to risk uh, military personnel and vessels. So. I'm not defending it, but I can kind of understand it. As I say, I'm not sure he deliberately caused the famine. I don't think he did, but he certainly did take his fucking sweet ass time in doing anything about it properly. In fact, he does actually write to the American president, FDR, saying, quotes, and this is a letter to him. I am seriously concerned by the food situation in India. Last year we had a grievous famine in Bengal through which at least 700,000 people died. This year there is a good crop of rice but we are faced with an acute shortage of wheat aggravated by unprecedented storms. By cutting down military shipments and other means I have been able to arrange for 350,000 tons of wheat to be shipped to India from Australia during the first nine months of 1944. This is the shortest haul I cannot see how more I cannot see how to do more I have had much hesitation in asking you to add to the great assistance you are giving us with shipping but a satisfactory situation in India is of such vital importance to the success of our joint plans against the Japanese that I am impelled to ask you to consider a special allocation of ships to carry wheat to India from Australia we have the wheat but we lack the ships. I have resisted for some time the Viceroy's request that I should ask you for your help, but I am no longer justified in not asking for your help.
0: It seems like he did genuinely try to sort it.
1: Yeah. I really do now believe that Churchill wanted to show the world that the British Empire was still a dominating force in the world, and refused to acknowledge that there were problems. I think Churchill's greatest failing was his unwillingness to accept the situation as it was. In that, yeah. in that, yeah. in that quote, he is saying that they sort of some bad situation happened. We let it run. Seven hundred thousand people died. It's not good enough, right? obviously more and more and more people died. He's saying 700,000 people died. Well, it does seem that the Bengal famine lasted from 1943 to 1944. It only improved when crops improved and imports came and then the prices of food dropped. Now, everyone, everyone loads of people keep claiming that it's 4 million people died. It's not as high as that. It's between 2 to 3 million people died. Now, that doesn't help. It doesn't make it any better. But Churchill, at some point, he's asking... Um, He's asking FDR at the point of where he thinks 700,000 people have died. I don't know whether he knew how many people actually died, but he thinks at least 700,000 people have died. That's a lot of fucking people. And at that point, he's asking for help. Yeah. Before it even hits a million, it seems, he's asking for help. So I'm not... I really don't... I'm really... Again, it's not to defend shit. I'm just trying to understand history. And I think that's really important that we do that. And that's what we're trying to do with this podcast about this guy who's so controversial it does seem that he, he is trying but i think his biggest failing is that he wouldn't accept what was happening when it happened and only when it got really bad then he start actually doing something about it because he is he is at this point he's begging the americans to help him he's saying look we've got the, we've got the resources all we need is your ships and also interestingly to point out no one really mentions this fdr said no yes
0: yeah, so i suppose the americans uh complicit
1: in it. So yeah, it's really easy to say oh, Churchill orchestrated the famine of Bengal. Well, you can also say that the Americans exacerbated it and allowed it to continue even though they knew it was happening because Churchill asked for help and they said no. So, I mm. uh, you know, and also as well like I say, I think I'm a fair I think it's fair for me to say that he put it off until it was no longer able to because he says at the end of the quote, um, I have resisted for some time the viceroy's request that I should ask for your help, but I am no longer justified in not asking for your help so that the viceroys of india said please can you help us out and he said no he said no we will figure it out we will fix it we are the british empire we can fix it and only then when it was so desperate he went "No, know we can't we have to get help only then did he ask for help that's what i'm saying james i'm so i'm so hell-bent on not thinking that he genuinely believed that if they could do it off their own backs if they could do it as much as they could he would be able to maintain this sort of strong image of an empire.
0: It's definitely shed a lot more context onto it. Yeah, it 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 definitely does seem that he's he's very. I think he's too proud to a fault. Hundred
1: percent, he's too proud. He genuinely believes in this empire that doesn't exist anymore. It's dying,
0: and as a result, people are dying with it. And he's exactly not trying to sort it out until the issue is too far gone exactly
1: so you know people really quick to label him as a villain but i just think he's just a flawed old man who won't accept what's happening which
0: obviously yeah, which obviously, so yeah causes people... deaths which i suppose yeah there, there is a big issue there totally
1: it's a big issue yeah um but yeah because
0: he hasn't he hasn't deliberately gone out to kill these people but his i don't know what's the word just ignorance i guess Mm. has caused them to die which is still very bad totally
1: yeah his ignorance and refusal to accept things as they are is what's caused people to die and yeah his stubbornness to try and flog a dead horse causes people to die so let's go back a couple of years to 1940 again we're going to Mers el kabir which is on the coast of french algeria now as groundskeeper Willie in The Simpsons might put it, which is a great way of starting this sentence, the English the English and the French have been enemies for life. History is littered with wars between the two nations, but not in World War II. We're allies, right? Try telling the, mm-hmm. tell, try, t- try telling the British in 1940. We couldn't help but want to give the French a good old kick in while they were down. Now, I'm joking, of course, right? But we did have a little go. So... You might not know of this but it's a really interesting story it's 1940 and the, and france has fallen to the nazis churchill and the british they've got one major concern a really powerful french navy fleet is sat anchored at mers el kabir in french algeria now their main concern was that with the french subjugated their navy would be absorbed into the germans and it would overpower the British and turn the tide of the war. So, the Brits sent their own little naval fleet to Mers el-Kabir and give the French fleet three options. One, sail with the Royal Navy against the Germans. Two, sail to a British port where the ships would go into British hands and be redistributed. Or three, sail to the Caribbean and have the ships disarmed. Now, when a British captain went to discuss terms with the French admiral, he was rejected a meeting because the French admiral was so offended that they would send a mere captain to meet with him.
0: (laughs) Now, I don't think he's in any position to fucking get
1: hissy about it. Exactly. Now, he refused the captain aboard his ship. So instead, he went to the captain and discussed terms with him. The French fleet said that if the Germans came for them, they would scuttle. But they wouldn't bow down to the British just because they said so. Churchill said of this quote, At all costs, at all risks, in one way or another, we must make sure that the Navy of France did not fall into the wrong hands. Now, after desperately trying to find a solution, time was up, and the Royal Navy opened fire on the docked fleet, leaving them no longer seaworthy. And leaving over a thousand French sailors dead.
0: No way. Yep. I didn't know this. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, we totally attacked the French during the first years of the war.
0: Oh, shit. Yeah, That's mad. It's
1: crazy, isn't it? That's our ally, and we just decimated that fleet.
0: I mean, I get I get it. You don't want the Germans to have it. Completely get that. But then the French should be like, you know what? Yep, yeah, fair. Take it. No, yes. Yeah, so or we'll sail with you.
1: Yeah. So we opened fire. We sent over a couple of uh, aircraft to sort of tempt them and call their bluff. And they went, nah, they won't actually have a go at us. Uh, and then the British Navy went, no, we mean it. And they opened fire on them. So they tried to escape. And basically the British Navy chased them down and made them no longer seaworthy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, French, w- the oh. French weren't happy with it for a little time. It took some, um, took some patching up. But yeah, that, that happened. That oh, actually yeah. happened. The British fought the French, who were their allies in the first years of the war.
0: Mental. Yep. Uh, now,
1: the Dresden bombing, which is rather controversial. It's 1945. It's the dying months of the war. Literally, the war will end in months' time. The RAF Bomber Command and American Air Force conducted another area bombing sortie. Now, precise bombing during the Second World War was very, very difficult at the time, so bombings of whole areas was adopted instead. Possibly as a retaliation for the Blitz, but a big part was due to demoralise the civilian population. For some reason, I don't understand why. Why were civilians targeted? Like, I don't understand it. Under no circumstances should that ever be a
0: tactic. It is just to get them to give up, isn't it, really? Yes, it's
1: horrendous, man. Um, Now, the bombing of Dresden happened over the nights of the 13th to the 15th of February. Now, although there were military targets in Dresden, there were soldiers passing through the area, um, Dresden was quite a strategic point. It might help the Soviet troops push through Germany faster if they could clear it out. Now, it was heavily populated by civilians. So, in total, the Dresden bombings killed between twenty-three to 25,000 civilians during that campaign. And there was, that was so practically up. fucking nothing left of it.
0: It's like, there's there's the blitz and bombing, and then there's just decimating an entire city. Yeah,
1: I mean, the only sort of parallel we have are the two atomic bombs that America dropped over Japan. Um it is yeah. interesting to remember as well. Um, I'm not sure if many people are aware. You know there was a leafleting campaign before the bomb was dropped? They, they, they leafleted the shit out of... Um, uh, I sorry, I really can't remember, historians. I can't remember which was first, Nagasaki or Hiroshima. Um, but whichever one was first, mm. it was leafleted the shit out of to say, look, we have this sort of equipment and we will drop it and it is going to destroy your city. We suggest you evacuate and leave or like you know, surrender. Um, but people didn't evacuate. I think they sort of called the bluff and they didn't leave and then they dropped the bomb in anyway. And then they had the cheat to do it again.
0: Mm. Yeah, just twice. Japan were
1: like, nah. <laughs> nah, mate. <laughs> we can take it. Fuck like that. They're like Rocky. Japan during World War Two was like Rocky. It was like, it doesn't matter how many hits, it's how, was it how many times you can get hit and get back up. Yeah. That was them.
0: And then eventually they were just like, yeah, you know what, fair.
1: Yeah, yeah man. Do. They were like, wait, hold on a minute. Nuclear bombs. Now, we can take that. But wait, hold on. Russia's now free to fight us. Fuck that. And then they were like, no, <laughs> sorry. We bow down to America. Now, so, the war is over. Hooray! I didn't want to focus too much on World War II because like, it's the biggest part of Churchill's life, but this is not about World War II Churchill that everyone idolises. It's about Churchill the man. And we've spent the last two episodes talking about Churchill before the war. We're not going to spend all of this one talking about him during it. So, the question I have... Was Churchill really the man to win the war? Would Britain have won without him? Now, you could argue that without him from the very start, Britain might not have even entered the war, because obviously Chamberlain was all about um, appeasement. And if Churchill wasn't there to take over from him, would Britain have declared war itself anyway? Um... Well, obviously Chamberlain did declare war, but would they have like gone all in, and would they have um, gone for peace terms at Dunkirk so early? Because Churchill obviously was like, "No, nope, we are fighting this," but everyone else was a bit anti that. I don't know. What's your thoughts if you was to hyper?
0: Was it? Hi- Hi- Damn it. Yeah, hypothetical situations. It's oh, it's, it's 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 really tough because obviously we we can only talk about what actually happened and not what could have happened. But yeah. A lot of the uh, government at that time wanted to sign a peace treaty with Hitler, yeah. which would have been bizarre. And I suppose you've got to credit Churchill's backbone. He he, his backbone cost many more lives, but it also meant that we fought against one of the greatest super evils the world has mm. ever seen. Yeah. So 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 I I credit him there, like fair fucking play. That basically the entire government was against him, and he he kept saying no to them. And in, in the end, it was the correct decision. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I suppose that's my. Turn I suppose to work because, but 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 would we have won the war without him? You can't definitively say yes no. or no. You, you, like, it's n- impossible to know.
1: No. Um. The only thing we suppose we can really say, um. Is that he allowed tough decisions to be made and was arguably responsible for potentially single-handedly keeping up the morale of a nation, um, throughout the whole of the war um i think it would also be criminally unfair as i say to ignore the fact that he was the master of appearances and pr um as i say he had he was he had the right photo ops at the right times he made the right speeches at the right times shit like that made him so popular and recognizable and so famous as he is today without the second world war obviously churchill would just be another politician um in a long line of politicians that we've had um you know, yeah, come of the time, come of the man, isn't it? it? That's all it is, really, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, it's difficult to say and theorise and we'll never know, really. But it's it's, it's fun one to theorise about. So, by July of 1945, the first election in almost 10 years was to be held. Remember, at this point, Churchill's been prime minister, wartime leader. He's unelected. He wasn't elected as prime minister at mm. all. And it's arguable that he would ever have been elected had there been an election back then. He might not have been elected, Um, particularly with Chamberlain's sort of potentially weak stance on appeasement and things like that. They might not have even elected a conservative government in. But nonetheless, uh, elections do have to continue, otherwise you would become the despot that you just fought. And during the campaign, Churchill referred to his opposition as the Gestapo, which It seemed to backfire. You'd think it might work because you've just fought the Nazis, you've fought the Gestapo. To say, oh, the opposition, they're just like the Gestapo, it might turn people off them. But if anything, it seemed to do the complete Mm. opposite. It seems that, you know, people were keen on Churchill being their wartime leader and they appreciated everything that he did. And, you know, they weren't really keen on him being the right man to lead them during peace. It seems that even by him mentioning the Gestapo, as the opposition, they were like, oh man, this dude's stuck in the past. We want to move forward. We want to carry on and build Britain back up. We want to just move forward and get past this as quickly as possible. And you keep bringing it up. Obviously, it was, it was the moment that defined him. But Britain really weren't that bothered by it after the war. They really wanted to just move on. And they, maybe they felt that Churchill was stuck in it and living in it. So what happened was that they wanted change and change happened. They voted in a Labour government led by Clement Attlee. Now, Churchill seems to be quite understanding of this, saying, quotes, they have had a very hard time. This was a response to um, a physician doctor, of, uh, physician doctor friend of Churchill's saying about the election, saying basically that people being ungrateful for everything that he had done for them, the fact that they would vote him out. Uh, he replied just saying they've had a very hard time. Like, he... Didn't really seem to hold any grudges about that, which I quite like personally.
0: Yeah, yeah, I get it. He sympathises.
1: Yeah, I think that's really, I think he does genuinely sympathise with the British people he's not really that sympathetic to many other people he's not, he's a numbers man remember like we've we, over the last two episodes we've discovered that he's just a numbers dude, he's like give me results do you know what he is? he is C-3PO and Han Solo all in the same person you know when they're going for the asteroid field Yeah. and like C-3PO is like there's a so and so percentage chance that we're going to get through yeah. this, he would love that because he's like brilliant, but at the same time he's Han Solo because he's like that's brilliant but don't ever tell me again Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't bothered, I just need to know that it's going to get done that's him he's not emotional at all really um so churchill actually did remain an mp although no longer prime minister um and and head of the conservative party but here's a little question for you a little quiz um who was he the mp for which county was did he secure a constituency i'm going to give you three attempts to guess churchill for now Yep, it's now it's it's uh, the um, general election just after the war of nineteen forty-five has just right. happened. He's no longer prime minister, but he is an MP of what county in England is
0: he an MP in? So he's done Dundee, and he he's done, done Epping. Dundee. He has done Epping, and it's different to those two.
1: It's different to those two.
0: The geezer moves around a lot. Um, it does. Fuck! Oh, let's oh can you let's can, let's split the country in half? Or just oh, okay, let's. Uh, so three even South Midlands or North? Give me a hint. It's in the south. It's in the south, right? I'm. Um, was it Cornwall? Was it somewhere around there? No, it's not Southwest. It's Southeast. Kent. No, but you're very close. Oh, what's close to Kent? Fuck. Um, I genuinely don't know. Uh, Where am I from? Essex. Essex, that's right. He was an
1: MP for Woodford in Essex, which I only just found out. Now, I found that really interesting that he was an MP in Essex.
0: He moves around a fucking lot.
1: Yeah, he does. It does seem to be a thing in politics back then. And uh, I think it must go on still today. Like, you know, just running for seats that you know you're going to win. Yeah. So, as I say, he remained the leader of the Conservatives and was the official opposition of the government for a further six years. Um, bear in mind he's in his 70s as well at that like way into his 70s at this point so he was critical of the soviet union of course he really didn't like communism he really didn't like um joseph stalin or the uh ussr and he made his famous iron curtain speech in 1946 in america Uh, There, he referred to Britain and America's special relationship, which is a term he coined in 1944, did you know? So that term that we use now, saying the US and Britain still has a special relationship, Churchill referred to that. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Uh, So let's talk about the welfare state briefly. The Conservatives had reservations over the Labour's welfare state policies. Uh, The Conservatives under Churchill, you'll be surprised to learn, James, actually had a rather similar plan to Labour. In terms of having a new welfare state being introduced but they had a few different approaches to it they were opposed to the spending and the high taxes that labor brought in and they called it out at every opportunity really now the nhs which is the jewel in the crown of britain today something that we all have to be proud of particularly in today's current climate um james what do you think Churchill's thoughts on the NHS were?
0: I was reading this earlier, not or maybe it was yesterday and he oh, I I forget the quote but he was very much opposed to it and says it was the first step towards a national socialist government or something. Yeah. Um that's not necessarily
1: true. So you would would you be surprised if I told you that Churchill actually Ordered his cabinet to create a national, uh, what's the word I'm looking for again? Uh, a universal healthcare system before the NHS was brought in.
0: I did not know this.
1: Okay, so in
0: a speech to the Royal College
1: of Physicians, he said to them, "Quotes the intention, uh, sorry, the invention of healing science must be the inheritance of all." And in July of 1945, just before he lost that general election, he actually ordered his cabinet to move forward with a plan for universal healthcare. But it was just too late. They lost the election by that point, and then Labour brought in the National Health Service. Um, so they actually were going for a universal healthcare system. And they seemed to be all for it, but they just had a different approach to it. Um, so for them it wasn't going to be free at the point of use which is what labour brought in and what we know of and love today it wouldn't it would be more like um pay as pay as you earn so if you were on the lowest income you'd probably pay least and that sort of thing remember conservatives were still a capitalist style party they they, they they're all about you know not spending so much and making money um and one of their big trump cards it seems were doctors Lots and lots and lots of doctors, you'll be surprised to know, didn't like the idea of the NHS because they feared that what would happen is they would lose a shitload of their income. Doctors were paid a fuckload of money back then and they were scared if they worked for the NHS, they wouldn't be able to make that sort of money anymore. And the Conservatives mm. backed them and went, yeah, see, doctors don't like it. So what are you going to do? So that's where what they stood.
0: tables have turned now, isn't it? That The doctors are now vehemently opposed well gen- generally speaking to the conservatives because of what they want to do to the nhs
1: oh the cuts yeah because again they're losing money it really it makes you'll find as well a lot of doctors a lot of healthcare professionals sometimes go to the private market because you can make a shitload more money
0: yeah yeah there's a lot more money in private health it's like i think me and you had this conversation if we had the disposable income we'd probably go private as well we love oh, the nhs totally. but yeah with private healthcare, there's less waiting lists. Totally, but if you can afford
1: should... it, you should totally go private. You know, not burden the NHS, taking the free healthcare. You mm. can afford it, go for it. Fuck okay, it, why not? Um, yeah. So yeah, it, there's this whole thing that like they voted it down twenty so times. I think it is. It's like they've they yeah. they they voted down the, the the creation of the NHS like twenty odd times. That's not because they didn't want a universal healthcare system it's because they disagreed with how it would be implemented because they 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 were standing on the side of the doctors the doctors were like well i'm going to lose all this money and all this work and it's all going to go to this and it's all to be free and they didn't didn't understand how it would work um and the conservatives just backed them it's not that they didn't want an nhs which a lot of people like to throw about at the moment as someone who's a lefty liberal myself it's hard for me to say that but yeah, they they weren't anti NHS, they were just anti the way it would be implemented. Just to, yeah,
0: yeah, but then I the way in which it was implemented, I think we can sit here and say that 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 Labour got it spawn. Oh yeah, no, it, it being free at the point
1: of service for everyone, yes, totally agree. That's exactly how it should be. The idea that you'd have to pay for it in any way it just sort of defeats the object of it because people were paying for healthcare anyway. It's just it would just be cheaper or whatever. I don't know, but the problem is as well. We don't know how it would have been rolled out because it never was, so it's easy to you know theorise like we did Churchill winning the war. Uh, but yeah, um, yeah, it's something, there's a quote about it being um, Britain's first steps towards a socialist um, economy or something like that. Is the quote? Um, it I think that comes from Churchill's absolute fear of communism and the Soviet Union. So. He's already had his speech about the Iron Curtain going down. The Eastern Bloc, like parts of, half of Germany, was just cut off. Um, you know, you've got Eastern European countries are now just cut off from the rest of the world and are now part of the Soviet sphere of influence.
0: So I think he—I don't know—I think that's just a massive misinterpretation of what socialism is, though. Oh no, you're absolutely like, right. You're absolutely right. Um, but, communism is no one can be rich, whereas socialism is. Anyone can be rich, but no one can be poor.
1: Yes, but the Nazis also twisted the word socialism, didn't they?
0: Yeah, national socialism. Which, well, I fucking hate the argument of the Nazis were left-wing. But exactly. no, they fucking weren't. They were as far right as you can get. Exactly, and this is what I'm saying. So Communism, like Stalin, was as far left as you can get.
1: Well, he was so left, he was right.
0: <laughs> yeah, basically. But yeah, but Hitler and the Nazis were right-wing. So, like, that's bottom line. So it's really interesting to
1: contextualise history, isn't it, James? Because... Remember, socialist, socialist, the word socialist is now a negative word then. Mm. So I think it would be fair to say it was the first steps to this socialist economy because, as far as they were, they just fought national socialists and communists. You know, they don't, that's, it's, it's a negative word at the time. I think then obviously words change. Um, liberal, yeah, very true. Liberal back in early America was, um, uh i think like pro government or something like that and obviously now it's not it's the opposite it's something different it, yeah it words obviously change throughout history um but yeah he he was totally shit scared of soviet union and soviet influence and what he didn't want was communism to get like take any sort of hold in britain um he was he was a capitalist at the end of the day he did believe that you know that's how the world should work um and he didn't mm. he didn't want the soviet lifestyle being brought in and he was scared that The NHS being free for all was like the first step in bringing that in. Yeah. But he's also an old man and not very with the new world. So, as I say, Churchill is now aged 76 and his Conservative Party is back in government after a general election in 1951. Churchill is now officially an elected prime minister. And they were keen on keeping some aspects of the previous Labour government's social reforms, such as the NHS. See, if they were anti it, they would have just got rid of it. But they were like, yeah, fair enough, it works, keep it. Now, and it also costs a lot of money, remember? It costs a shitload of money. And obviously, Conservatives being stereotypically the money of the rich, like the, the party of the rich and the money and all this shit, if they really thought it was that much of a strain, they'd have got rid of it. Um... Now, the empire that Churchill knew was now a crumbling ruin. Calls for independence were now louder than ever. India had gained independence in 1947. British presence in in Egypt was rapidly declining with the revolutionary government being formed by Colonel Nasser. And Burma, now Myanmar, gained independence in 1948. This maybe explains such actions like the ones taken during the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya. Now, I only really learned about this. This is not taught in our schools. Like, like we were saying before, James, we want British colonialism and imperialism and the empire to really be taught a bit more in history lessons so that kids now grow up learning mm. what their country was like. Um, so I only found out during this research, you've got the KLFA, which is Kenya Land and Freedom Army. It was an independence movement, which initially started by students, that was fighting British military presence. Now, while colonialists in Kenya had better privileges when it came to making money and land rights, Kenyans had to have identification on them at all times. They were made to be wage workers. Given, uh, they were given a tax on their homes. And diff- different ethnic groups were forced to live in reserves, which obviously caused conflict because, you know, if, different ethnic groups have just been forced to live together. And that's just, it's, it's just literally like saying ready to bubble over. Uh, Kenyans were practically kept in perpetual poverty. Working conditions were often violent and involved a lot of beatings and the likes. And the legal system that was set up there was mainly against them, didn't really help them out at all. So people had enough and the Mau Mau uprising came to a head. Now, Churchill's government at home didn't pay much mind to it, expecting that the British presence in uh, Kenya would handle it. They tried to arrest the top leaders in the group in the hope that um, if you cut off the head of the snake, the body would die. But what all they did was just left diehard radicals, and a series of murders by the group ensued. And violence on both sides led to Britain sending thousands of troops to assist. Now, air power was the thing for them at that time, with the Brits dropping this is this shocked me six million bombs. In 19 between 1953 and 1955, on the Mau Mau rebellion re- uh, rebels, and ha- yeah. horrific war crimes were committed during this time. And now, this I'm talking about like, um, you know, beatings, torture, electrocution, rape, um, all sorts of fucking horrific human crimes against humanity were ha- happened during in, in Kenya during this time. Now, I don't know how much detail Churchill knew about what was going on there because you know, a lot of um British dominions had sort of self-governing they sort of just done their own thing um but he did certainly know about the bombing campaign that's that's for sure now it was one of many conflicts throughout the crumbling empire now rebranded as the British Commonwealth now churchill like his empire of old was a shell of the man he once was he was a man in power for sure but he was not a powerful man He had severe health problems, so severe that the king actually wanted him to resign but he too had his own health complaints which he would then soon die of a year into Churchill's premiership. Churchill would now serve under our current head of state Elizabeth II when Churchill had a stroke which partially paralyzed him and took months to recover from. Have you watched The Crown at all? Do you watch that?
0: I've seen bits. My my uh, mom and brother absolutely love it. Yeah,
1: they they, sort of, they, they do the, the, the stroke thing in the series, and he takes months off recovering from it in Kent, um, and he tries to hide it from the Queen, and then she finds out, and she's like a bit pissed off about it, and he's like, I'm really, really sorry, I would never lie to you again, all this sort of shit. Now, in April of 1955, Churchill accepted defeat and resigned as Prime Minister. He was knighted to the Order of the Garter, becoming Sir Winston Churchill. He spent his retirement predominantly at his home or in France, although he did remain in politics and was an MP until 1964, when he stepped down from that too. Bear in mind, Churchill was... It's quite, like,
0: fairly recent. Yeah, really?
1: 1964. My mum was born two years later.
0: Yeah, that's mental.
1: Now, on the 12th of January in 1965, Churchill had another stroke, which would be his last He died two weeks later on the 24th of January. He was 90 years old. Good innings. Good innings. 90 years old. Six days later, he was given a state funeral, which is usually reserved for royalty only. 6,000 people attended his funeral. Thousands more lined the streets. And the BBC broadcasted it worldwide and was watched by 350 million people. That's a whole lot That's of people. A whole lot of people, man. And that is Winston Churchill. Is I, I re- do you know what I really? I when I f- when I finished writing this script, I just put the end because I really don't know how to sort of bookend it. I really don't. Um, it's been a journey. It's really fucking been a journey, man. It's been a long, long, long series. We've learnt so much. The man is not black and white. He's not good, he's not bad, he's not a villain, he's not a hero. He is just a man who I genuinely believe was living in the past and couldn't accept the world for what it was. He was too stubborn and ignorant to refuse uh, and refuse to see the world change. Uh, and that was his biggest downfall.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think we've discussed it many times. There's, there's definitely two sides to this coin. Yeah. That you can, but I, th- but I think that 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 was our entire aim with these episodes is that there are two sides to this coin, and you can't just definitively say he won us the war. That's it. Can't say anything else. And you can't definitively say he committed genocide. Therefore, we should only remember him for that. Yeah, he was a man who, unfort, unfortunately and disgracefully so, was directly and indirectly involved in the deaths of many, many innocent people. Yeah but then he also stood up to his own government and said we will not sign a peace treaty with hitler which i i firmly believe that if we signed a peace treaty with hitler we would have been complicit with the holocaust which i think no one can deny is one of the worst things to ever happen on the planet mm. so he fought against that yeah 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 so it's 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 a it's a tricky one it's a it's a bloody tricky one it
1: is a tricky one and it's very difficult to just put him in one box and i don't think it would be fair to do so either i mean uh, it's relevant at the moment the reason we brought up churchill obviously because um with what's going on in the world at the moment there are there are statues being petitioned to be brought down left and center we had edward colston who was the slave owner from bristol his statue was rightly so brought down um he he made his money through the suffering of others um the thing with churchill was like as we've sort of uh, tried to bring up with this 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 whole series was that the man is is gray he's a gray man he's got flaws he's got good things he's got bad things he he makes the right and wrong decisions all the time um he has a statue of himself um outside the houses of parliament at parliament square which continuously gets threatened to be pulled down in almost every demonstration there is it's not unique to what's currently going on in the world every demonstration threatens to pull him down he is a divisive figure who people can't agree on um We've discussed this um, personally, like between ourselves before, about what we would do with the statue. And I think uh, we kind of agreed that if the statue represented a particular time, i.e. if the statue was like of a wartime Churchill, then it would make more sense because it's only highlighting and reflecting one particular time in his life. But it doesn't. It's a generic statue of him as a person, which I suppose the interpretation of the statue is, is different,
0: isn't it? Yeah, and I, I suppose Churchill has so many different meanings for so many different people. Like, we can sit here as I don't know, I guess, what, well, white British dudes and be like, well he didn't directly do anything bad to us if anything, he supported us and he won the war for Britain. Whereas if you are a descendant from someone in uh, Afghanistan for example, during his Afghan campaign or, or in Bengal or what what have you, then you've got a completely different perspective on yeah, the man.
1: Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, we as I say we both agree we don't learn our history for statues i walk past many many statues every day i work quite a bit in london i don't stop and stare and read about because at the end of the day as well remember the only thing that are on statues are the names of the person it tells you fuck all about them if you want to learn about someone you go to a museum or you look online or you read a book. Right statues are not fucking like this sacred ground that is just untouchable you can take them down it's not the end of the world it, history will not be forgotten just because the statue's been taken down it's okay to take it down it's fine like it,
0: i think a, a little a little fun fact i think if i remember rightly all the other statues around the uh westminster square are facing inwards whereas churchill's face is towards that's parliament right. yeah that's, I right, believe. that's true i don't know why though i think it's just very symbolic mm. Yeah, well, I suppose he, he spent 50-odd like, years of his life in there. Yeah, I guess. I bet Boris is fucking like... like He desperately wants a statue oh, there. Oh, I said as well.
1: before, I mean, I posted on my own um, personal social media at the beginning of coronavirus saying that he was... I, I asked someone, if, they, if any of our listeners are artists, could you please do this for me? Because I really would love it. Could anyone... Uh, draw or paint me a picture of boris johnson our current prime minister stood in front of um a picture of winston churchill with his pants around his ankles having a wank and then can it can can it be captioned this is my moment because i genuinely think boris johnson thinks that this is his churchill moment that like the moment that will define him but it's not it will define him as an absolute fucking massively idiot massively balls it up yeah. as well yeah, so if there's any listeners, could you please do that for me and send it to us via uh, email at that's what people do podcast at com. That is a picture of Boris Johnson staring at a picture of Winston Churchill, pants around his ankles, having a wank with the caption, this is my moment. That's what I want. If, you could, if anyone can make that for me, I will love you forever. Uh, and I think that might be a good place to end it. Um, I really, really, really fucking hope you've enjoyed this series because it's taken me literally hours and hours and hours to fucking research and write um if you feel like i've missed anything out which i know i have i've skipped over a few things i've left some things out there's like minor strikes and whales and loads of fucking things that i have not mentioned um i am sorry if you feel like i've not like mentioned it or something you know i'm sorry about that but look there's so much to fucking cover and we haven't got all the time in the world to do it and this is three parts man and you don't want to be listening to us all the time so yeah Um, I really hope you've enjoyed the series so far Um, next week we are going to be talking about something completely different because it is um, we need some fucking like banners and party poppers like fanfare Um, (laughs) it'll be a a one year anniversary if that's what people do podcast next week a whole whole fucking year year, man yeah man Um, and so we're taking it nice and easy because like you know the Churchill stuff's been heavy man um we are going to be watching a film called searching for sugar man which was recommended to us by uh, a friend of ours alex who helped us with our intro that you guys listen to at the beginning of every episode uh he recommended this film to us saying i think you guys might find this interesting maybe give it a watch and see what you think so we're going to give that a go and we're going to talk about it next week and we're also going to have a little chit chat just about how the podcast is getting on um and sort of uh, any sort of plans that we may have for the future, anything that we've got, any updates, all sort of stuff like that. So next week it's going to be a bit of a nice, more relaxed episode. We love sitting fucking watching documentaries and films and then talking about it afterwards. So
0: yeah, it's, it's one of my favourite yeah, of episodes. Good
1: episodes then. then. Um, so yeah, uh, make sure you hit us up on all the social medias as well, please. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook at that's at that's WPD uh, or on Twitter. You can put in the same handle at that's wpd find us on instagram at that's what people do podcast and as i said before drop us an email if you want to talk to us at uh, that's what people do podcast at gmail.com also if i could ask just a wee little favor if you have time drop us a little five star review on your uh, platforms whatever you listen to us give us a little review maybe say oh these guys are brilliant uh, or you know just give us a little little rating really really appreciate it it really will help the podcast grow so we can get more and more people listening to us and hearing the good word of our god i mean me and james um yeah yeah. so yeah be eternally grateful for you could do that and yeah that's everything i think yep brilliant Smash all right then we will see you next week
0: bye farewell